If you have your Bible, please open it up now. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 10. Galatians 1, 6 to 10. Let me read it for us, and then we'll jump right in. This is God's word for us this morning. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Just over 500 years ago, in the year 1516, Martin Luther walked down to the church in Wittenberg, Germany, and nailed 95 theses to that church door. What Luther was attempting to do was bring the church at the time back into alignment with what the, the early church, the original church, had first believed, and also what the Bible, he thought, teaches us to believe. What Luther did in that moment radically changed the church and the history of the world. For Luther, the most important book in the Bible was Galatians. It's this letter that we're studying and looking at this morning. Luther said, you should read Galatians a thousand times. He said, if I could marry one book of the Bible, I would marry Galatians. And the reason, he says, Galatians is so impactful is is you see it. Actually, you see it four, almost five times in our passage. Look at it again. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is one, but there are some who would trouble you and want to distort the gospel. But even if we or an angel should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we gospelized or preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said to you before, so now I say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Galatians is all about the gospel. The good news, that's what the gospel is, it's news of how we are saved and enter back into a relationship with Jesus. Now, there are books of the Bible where a more elaborate or bigger unpacking of the gospel takes place. That's Romans, for example. But Galatians is unique because it teaches us something very important. It tells us what the gospel is not. It draws a very clear line and says, if you cross this line, you're no longer believing the one true and only gospel. So this morning, I have two things I want us to look at. One is... um, the gospel received. What actually is the gospel? And secondly, the gospel threatened. Now now that you know the gospel, you need to be aware of all the attacks that come on that gospel. So, so two things, okay? Here we go. First, first idea. Gospel received. The gospel received. L- look at verse 6 again. 
I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Um, To read this letter from Paul would have been quite startling for the churches in Galatia, this region of Galatia. You see, it, it was common practice in the day to begin a letter after you give a little bit of a greeting, hey, it's Paul writing to you, to begin with a word of thanksgiving or, or a word of prayer in, in Paul's other letters. So actually, we see this throughout Paul's other letters. So let me just turn, let me show you this. So Romans 1, I don't have this on the screen, but listen, Paul begins his letter in Romans. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Or the letter of First Corinthians. Again, this Corinth, the church in Corinth was a mess, one of the most morally corrupt churches, and yet Paul begins that letter by saying, I give thanks to my God always for you. Or, I'm going to keep going here, you need to see this, or he says in Ephesians, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Or Philippians, I thank my God always for you. Or Colossians, Actually, we, I'm, I'm losing it, but no, let me, let me give you one more. Here we go. Colossians. We always thank God the Father for all of you. So I thank you, I thank you, I thank you, I thank you, over and over again. And now you get to Galatians, and how does Paul begin? He goes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to another gospel. Paul, you, can, you can just imagine Paul, right? He gets wind that there's this corrupt teaching entering into the churches in Galatia, and he goes, grab my parchment, let's go. I got a letter to write. He sits down, and he's like, I don't have time for things. This is too serious to, to give thanks. I am astonished. Paul uses that word astonished only twice in all of his writings. Uh, one of them is in 2 Thessalonians 1, when Jesus comes back down to earth with all of his angels in fire, and Jesus goes, we're going to be astonished. Or Paul goes, we're going to be astonished. And you know what else astonishes me? That you're turning to a different gospel. Um, Maybe you've heard it explained this way. So there are open-handed issues and closed-handed issues. Maybe you've heard this. Open-handed issues are doctrines or or beliefs around Christianity where we're allowed to disagree and still call each other's brothers and sisters in Christ. We can still be Christians and yet disagree on open-handed issues. Closed-handed issues, however, are issues where if you disagree, you are no longer a follower of Jesus. I think maybe a more helpful way to think through that is through uh, what one theologian called theological triage. Theological triage. The word triage, right, if you so enter a, an emergency room, um, you, you cannot, you have to prioritize who you're going to see, right? So someone who walks in uh, with a cut finger is going to be treated less quickly than someone who gets stabbed in the chest, for example. And if you're in Surrey, you probably wait a minimum of three hours for both. But the, the point is, you, you have to actually uh, discern which is more urgent, which is, which is more critical. So the same can be applied to various beliefs around 
Christianity or the Bible. So third order issues are issues where we can disagree and yet we can remain even part of the same local church. So for example, we can disagree on how exactly old the earth is. It's fine. That, that would not affect your, your day-to-day interactions in, in, in the church. Christians throughout history have disagreed with that. You can disagree on how the end will look. Lee and I had different beliefs on how the end times will look. He was wrong, and I was still able to work with him for five, five years. Um, those, are, those, are, those are third degree issues. Second degree issues are doctrines or beliefs where if you disagree, you're still followers of Jesus. It just remains difficult to interact in the same local church. So for example, if if someone believes that every Sunday we should be publicly praying in tongues and someone else says, I don't don't think that's what we're called to do, it would be difficult to be part of the same church. If someone says we should baptize babies and another Christian says, no, we shouldn't baptize babies, it'd be hard to be part of the same local church. So the second degree issues, but then there's first degree issues or, or issues of first importance, most critically. These are issues where if you disagree, you are not a follower of Jesus. The Bible would say you are outside of the faith, the one true faith delivered uh, by the apostles down through the generations. These would be issues such as the deity of Jesus, the fact that there is one God and yet three persons, and, Paul says, of first importance is the gospel. That's what astonishes him right now. This is a first-degree issue. If, if you forsake the good news of how Jesus saves you, you are not a follower of him. Paul says in, in verse 6, again, look at it, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. That word, um, deserting, he says, look, look at what you're deserting when you, when you change in the gospel. You desert him. You, you're, you're not just leaving me. You're not just leaving a life of rewards. You're leaving God. That, that word desert in, in the, uh, has the idea of a turncoat. Right? So back in the day, you would wear a pin or a badge with your political allegiance on your coat. But then let's say you had now a, a new perspective or, or a new idea, uh, a new political allegiance. Well, you can't show up to your political party wearing your same coat and badge. And so you would literally flip your coat inside out. You, you would be a, a turncoat. Paul says, in, in the same way as you can't just change political platforms and belong to the same party, you can't believe another gospel, another source of life, another means of salvation, and belong to God. Paul says there is not another way. Verse 7, he says, not that there is another one. To walk away from God is to walk away from the only true source of Flourishing, the only source that actually fully satisfies, the only ultimate source of life and salvation. What is it about the gospel that is so critical? What is it about the gospel that we have to absolutely fight and contend for? Um, So uh, author Philip Yancey describes a, a conference, a British conference on comparative religions. 
in this conference, a bunch of religious experts from around the globe had gathered in a room, and they began to debate what, if anything, was so unique about Christianity. So eventually, they're they're talking, and C.S. Lewis walks in, and in classic C.S. Lewis form, he goes, what's the rumpus about? And they say, we're, we're trying to wrestle with what, if anything, is unique about Christianity compared to all the other religions in the world. And he goes, oh, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace. Grace is what is unique about the gospel. Verse 6, look at it again. He says, God called you in the grace of Christ. And then in verse 7, he calls it the gospel of Christ. The, The good news, the gospel, is one of grace. Of grace. Acts 20, 24, Paul writes this. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. It's all about grace. What is grace? Grace is an unobligated favor to an undeserving recipient. Grace is an unobligated favor to an undeserving recipient. So Tim Keller gives an illustration I think is really helpful here. He says, let's say you have an awesome teacher. Okay, there's an awesome school teacher, and at the end of, your, uh, end of the year, you decide to buy them a gift. He says, that's not grace. Because, look, even though you were unobligated, you didn't, it wasn't part of the contract that you would buy them a gift at the end of the year, in a way, they are deserving. They went above and beyond. He gives another example. He says, okay, let's say you have an awful employee. They're just lazy and careless. They, aren't, they don't do what they're told. And at the end of the, their two weeks, you still pay them. He says, that's also not grace. Because even though they are undeserving of it, in a way you are obligated. It's part of the contract. You agreed to pay them. Then he says, though, let's say you have an awful neighbor. Some of you have these. Some of, let's say you have an awful neighbor. They're um, loud. They're dirty. They're inconsiderate and, and cold and harsh and, and rude. And one day they become ill and you decide you're going to run out and buy them groceries. You are going to, while they're bedridden, you're going to mow their lawn and and care for their house. Tim Keller says that's grace because they are both undeserving and you are unobligated. Grace is an unobligated favor to an undeserving recipient. And Paul says, you know what's going on? Is you are distorting the gospel. Verse 7, there are some who will trouble you and want to distort the gospel. That word distort in the original language has the idea of reversing. You're reversing. So instead of salvation coming to undeserving people by an unobligated God, you're trying to say that salvation comes to deserving people by an obligated God. And that's no longer the gospel. 
See, what these um, teachers had begun to teach this church in Galatia is that if you do this good thing, if, if you just obey a certain way, if you clean yourself up and, and serve God, then God will look at you and is obligated to save you. But as C.S. Lewis says, that's just like every other religion in the world. The only thing that distinguishes all of these other religions is what that good thing is. Some religions will say you have to do this thing and then our God will save you. Other religions will say you have to do this thing and then our God will save you. But Christianity says, no, no, it's all by grace. It's not about what you do at all. You, you, you don't earn it. God's not obligated to give you anything and you certainly aren't deserving of anything that he gives you. It's the reverse. See, the message of Christianity is this. Please hear me. That we are saved by grace. That, that we lived in rebellion against God. That we had violated his commandments, his rules, his laws for our life, and we chose to be our own gods instead of acknowledging him as Lord and God of our lives. The Bible calls that sin. And because of our sin, every one of us is under a curse. We deserve death and judgment. But God chose to forgive us and save us. Not because of any goodness in us, but because of grace. Just, just because God chose to love us. Just because. And so what happens is that just can't be credit to us. And so if God is also going to be a just God... What God does is he sends Jesus who lives a perfect life. He lives the life we should have lived and then he takes our curse upon himself. He takes the judgment of God on himself. He does. And the way this exchange happens is not by you pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. It's by faith. We come to God with open hands, with nothing in our hands. And we say, will you please credit to that? That to me, I, I accept that gift. Look, look, the gospel is the gospel received. It's received. It's not something we do. It's something we accept as a gift. It's all grace. It's not what we do. It's what Jesus has done in our place. So that's the gospel received. Secondly, the gospel threatened. Right, So that's the gospel. Now Paul says, okay, now you need to be aware of how this gospel is going to be uh, attacked. Paul says that these attacks on the gospel come very powerfully. The, the pull to distort the gospel or drift from the gospel is strong. He says in verse 6, I am astonished, look at it, that you are so quickly deserting. You're quickly deserting. This didn't even take that long. You see, if you read in the book of Acts, the history of Paul's journey to Galatia, you can read it in Acts 13 and 14, you realize Paul goes throughout this province of Galatia, and we read over and over again, many people there believed. The gospel came with power over there. Then over here, there were miracles being done, and, the, and lives were changed by the, by the multitude. And they, they were so impressed, so amazed, they even treated Paul like a god. They thought this was incredible. And now, Paul says, you're just quickly deserting the gospel? It, it, it can happen just like that. 
What, what exactly is happening in this church in Galatia? There are these Jewish Christian legalists. So there's this Jewish Christian legalist. We call them Judaizers. And Judaizers had come in to this church, and they go, you know what, Jesus is great. I, I agree with you. But if you really want to be right with God, there's also a few things you have to do first. And so they began to create a bunch of rules. You have to be circumcised like, like the Jews did. Back in the day when, when we belonged to God as his people, you have to be circumcised. There's a few festivals. There's some few like rituals we ha- you have to participate in. And, and Paul says, no, 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 hold on. If you add one thing to the gospel, just, just one requirement, you've totally reversed the thing. So he says, look, there are these external threats and there are these internal threats, okay? First, external threats. Look, look at verse 8. Paul writes, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. That's crazy. Just think about it for a minute. So let's say you're just hanging out and all of a sudden an angel shows up before you. Like full-on angel. Like he's glowing. He's got the wings. He's floating in the air. He does things that you're like, yeah, this would be an angel. Things that would make you believe this is an angel. He's like, pigs are starting to fly. He does the whole, like, I walk through the wall thing. Toronto Maple Leafs win the Stanley Cup for once. Miracles. And you're like, yeah, this is an angel. And he goes, just one thing. Just just one little thing, though. You're, You're almost there. But if you just add this little thing, it doesn't have to be a hard thing. Just like every morning, could you just like say a hubba da bubba da? I don't know, something, something easy. Just do this one little thing. Man, then you'll experience true salvation. You know what Paul says to the angel? He says the angel can go to hell. I, I, I know that sounds crazy. Okay, this, is, this sounds harsh, okay? I, I understand. But that's what he says. Even if an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. He's cursed, Paul says. And the punishment totally fits the crime. Look, if, if someone pulls someone, someone else away from the curse remover, so if you draw people away from the curse remover, then you deserve the curse. Then you deserve the judgment of God. I think there can be people, this is how we're tempted today, maybe not an angel, but there can be people who show up and man, they seem impressive. They're charismatic. They got all the credentials or the letters behind their name. They're wealthy. They're influential. They're powerful. And they all of a sudden say, hey, let me, let me point you to the good life. Just, just over here a little bit. It can be close, but just this, just this little thing. I think that's how we're tempted today. Paul says, don't let them entice you. Don't believe them. Paul even says, I think this is even more crazy. Paul says, even if we show up to you and preach to you a different gospel, we should be cursed. Don't listen to even me if I change my mind on what I tell you is the good life and the good way to experience salvation. Imagine how challenging that would be. 
You, you, this is someone that you trusted. This is someone who radically changed your life. Right? So, someone, maybe you heard that, that gospel for the first time from someone, a dear friend, a family member, a, a parent, a pastor, and, and now they go, I got something else. I've been, I found something else in the Bible. It's a little different. Paul says, don't believe them. Look, it's not the messenger that validates the message. It's the message that validates the messenger. Right? You, don't, you don't judge someone by who they are. You, you judge someone by, by what they say. Listen to the way Luther puts it. Luther's a little prickly. He's a little spicy, like this sermon. But this is what he says. That which does not teach Christ is not apostolic meaning it's, it's not from God. It's not authoritative. Even if Peter and Paul be the teachers. On the other hand, that which does teach Christ is apostolic. Even if Judas, Annas, Pilate, or Herod should propound it. Those are the four people that killed Jesus. He goes, if they tell you the truth, you should believe them. It's not about the messenger. It's about the message. So, Read this for yourself, please. Let me be that plea, be, be the person who pleads with you this morning. Th- this is what's authoritative. This contains the very word of God. R- read it for yourself. Have God speak to you personally. You don't always have to get it through someone and then test what someone says by this. Hold fast to the gospel. Don't let cunning or power or eloquence pull you away. So, Keep an eye out for external threats, but also keep a watch out internally for internal threats. Why would the Galatians, let me ask you this, why would the Galatians want to do something to experience salvation? Think think about that. I think that's a really interesting thought, okay? Why would they want to have to do something? Like, it's all offered by grace, and yet there's this internal pull within them that goes, I actually want to do something. I want to have to earn it ju- just a little bit. Wh- why would they want to do that? But, you see, across religions, there are always multiple different ways to get right with God. Some religions, it's a pilgrimage. Some religions, you, you take a bath in a certain body of water. The Aztecs, they sacrificed 80,000 people over four days. And here in Galatia, the, the Judaizers are saying it's circumcision. So now, so today, probably not tempted with circumcision, maybe, or um, a bloody sacrifice. But there are other things that we're drawn to that we want to add to grace. So in, in some religious circles, it can be doctrine, right? We have to, we have to get it right. Right? We, we, have to, we have to know the Bible, and if we know the Bible to a certain level, then, then we're good with God. Uh, other people, it, it's not about knowing something, it's about doing something. So there's a certain religious practice. If, if you take communion, or, or, if you, or if you get baptized, that's what will save you, or, or maybe it's confessional, you confess your sins regularly, or maybe it's some sort of act of service in the church. Right? That's what we, we need to do to experience salvation. Or, um, in more progressive churches, it's not a specific religious thing. It's just generally, we just have to be good people. 
where anyone can be saved. It doesn't, it's not about certain, certain religious practices, as long as you're good enough. And the problem with all of these things is what it does is creates a standard. Creates a standard of who's in and, and who's out. There's, there's a threshold. The, the problem with all of that is the gospel says, Jesus says that all are welcomed into his family. That there's not a certain level of goodness required for you to belong to him. The obedient can get in and the disobedient. The, the wise and the foolish. The zealous and the one who stumbles. All are welcomed at his table. And so why do, why do we create these standards? What, what is it about us that wants just this little extra thing on top to do? I think there's a two, couple of reasons. I think one of the reasons is we want control. We want control. You see, sometimes the more difficult that little thing, the better. Because it gives us the feeling of now God being in our debt. Right? I did this thing. God, now you owe it to me. And, and, it, and it puts us in the driver's seat. It, it makes us feel like we are in control of the outcome. It, it basically prioritizes my desires for my life instead of what God wants for me. I'm, I'm in control. If only I get to do this thing, then God owes it to me. And he better take me where I want him to take me. But the gospel says, no, no, no. It's all by faith. It's a life of surrender, of, of trusting in God. I think not only do we want control, we also long for pride. We want something to stand on. See, what, what we do is we create these certain standards. It always turns out that we're on the right side of that standard, where we just get in. And then we look down upon anyone else who didn't do that thing that we thought they should do. Right? It's the, the who's who and the who's not. And I did this, so I'm better than everyone else. And, and it gives us this just this tiny bit of superiority. Like, Yes, I am deserving of the salvation. There, there is something about me that, that, that I should get some credit for this. And the gospel says, no, no, no. We're all on level ground. The, the ground is flat at the cross. We're, we're all saved by grace and grace alone. None of us are deserving. There, there's, there's nothing to stand on. We're, we're all equal before Jesus. So the gospel humbles us. And yet, fascinatingly, the gospel provides us with this deep sense of security. It does. Look at verse 10. Paul says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul knew that what he just said is hard to hear. It, it rubbed, it's going to rub some of these people the, the wrong way. He says, you're not going to like me. Honestly, you, you're not, not going to like me anymore. But, Paul says, I'm not actually held captive by what you think of me anymore. I don't get my value and dignity from you. I get it from Jesus. See, the gospel says... We are far worse than you ever can imagine. We are. We're far worse than any of us think we are. And yet, we have far more dignity and worth than we could ever imagine too. Look, 
God had to come to earth. That's the only way we could be saved. That's how desperate we are. And yet, God came to earth for you. That, that's how much he loves you. That's how much value and worth and dignity you, you have. You belong to the king of the universe. He, he made you for a relationship with him. That, that's how much he values you. So we're far worse than we think and far more valued than we think. And look, if Jesus died for me, man, will he not also give me everything else I need? I don't find my security, my, my protection in, in others. Man, God's got my back. He died for me. He's not going to be stingy now and not give me the things that I need in life. God's going to look after me. I heard this prayer by J.D. Greer. He's a pastor in the States. I think it's really good. I say this to myself um, often, (laughs) multiple times a day sometimes. He says this. In Christ, please hear this. This is a prayer to God. In Christ, there is nothing I can do that would make you love me more and nothing I can do that makes you love me less. Let me just say that again. There is nothing, Crossridge Church, that you can do that would make God love you more. There's not. And there's nothing, if you are in Christ, that you can do that would make you love him, make him love you any less. Your presence and approval are all I need for everlasting joy. I'll measure your compassion by the cross and your power by the resurrection. And so when you're tempted to drift from the gospel, to stand on some other ground, just something you feel like gives you a sense of control or, or security in life. Look to the cross and look to the empty tomb and see his mercy, his love, and his power. So let me, let me end like this. I began with some Luther. I'll end with Luther. After nailing those 95 theses to the door uh, in Wittenberg, uh, as you might imagine, he wasn't very popular by the religious people. The, the rest of, most of Germany, historians estimate about 80% of uh, Germans actually agreed with him. So, um, but the, the, the religious establishment hate him at the time. The Pope hates him now. But they can't kill him because the people love him. And so what they do is they say, okay, here's what you're going to do, Luther. You're going to come to this assembly. The assembly was called the Diet of Worms, spelt Diet of Worms. A little confusing. That's the Germans for you. The Diet of Worms. The assembly in a place called Worms. Anyways, this is too much information. TMI. Anyways, there, he's going to go there. And uh, they say, Luther, this is what we want you to do. Recant. Just take it back. And so Luther goes, can give me one day, one day to think about it. So he shows up to Worms, and he's terrified for his life. He goes, I, this is what I think I should do. I should stand firm, and yet I think, God, they're going to kill me. And I'm afraid to die. And in the end, the next day, he comes before the assembly, and he says this. I don't have it on the screen, but here's what it says. My conscience is held captive by the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to do so is to go against conscience, and that is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. What is it that allows Luther to risk his life, to stand firm on what the gospel is? 
It's an overwhelming sense of God's love. It's believing that God can help him and will help him in life or in death. So after that, after he says that, the room goes crazy. Luther is actually able to slip out and and hide. He ends up hiding in a castle. He changes his name. And he says, in that castle, I fought the devil with ink. I always thought what that meant is he threw this ink blot at the wall where he thought he saw the devil. Actually, I think what he means is I fought the devil by writing. What, what Luther did in that castle is he translated the Bible into the common language, into German, into a language where people could read this for themselves and, and discover the fact that it's not about earning anything. It's not about doing anything. It's all by grace. It's not what we do. It's what Jesus did. And all we have to do is put our faith in what he's done and believe it. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for grace. Undeserved, unmerited kindness. Lord, we are keenly aware of our temptation to stand on something we do some sort of earning, some sort of checklist that just makes us feel good about ourselves. God, I pray instead, would you help us to see that all that has been done for us in Jesus, Lord, that there's nothing actually better than belonging to you. All of Christ's righteousness is ours. Lord, there is nothing we can do that would make you love us more, and there is nothing we can do that would make you love us any less. So we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.